What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Caleb Crane read his story, Easter, which appeared in the September 26, 2022 issue of the magazine. Crane is the author of one book of nonfiction and two novels, Necessary Errors and Overthrow, which was published in 2019 and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Now here's Caleb Crane. Easter. On the plane from Houston to Fort Worth, 21F turned out to be a window seat. Jacob shrugged out of his backpack and swung it down the row. He wasn't stoned, but he had been stoned recently and still had the residual, exhausted, dissociated calm of someone who had recently been stoned. A state of mind that was milder and lacked any spasms of paranoia. Kind of better, actually. He kept being reminded because every flight echoes every other flight on account of the sameness of the costumes and rituals, of how thickly, blockily stoned he had been on the plane he had taken from Massachusetts to Houston a few days earlier, and the memory dropped another light scrim of defamiliarization between him and the world. During that flight, everyone seemed to be aware that he was thinking about the black plastic film canister of weed, its rubbery gray cap hopefully airtight, that he had tucked in among the socks in his suitcase just before leaving his dorm, Would the authorities find it? Was a police officer going to come shoving down the aisle? He had tried not to care that the workings of his mind were visible. Even if people could see, most of them would be constrained from saying that they could by its being impolite to say so, as impolite as saying you can see a stranger's underwear. And people would be especially constrained on an airplane, where custom seems to have preserved, as if in amber, the manners that obtained when air travel first became common. The 1940s, probably. No one had sat down in the seat next to him, and the cabin doors were shut now, so it looked like he was going to have some privacy. He unzipped his backpack and took out a composition notebook that he had started using as a journal. He wanted to write about his visit to Stu Rossiter. In Houston, he had been staying with his grandmother on his father's side, and on Tuesday he had borrowed her car and driven down to Galveston to spend the night at Stu's. When he had explained the visit to his grandmother, he had called Stu a friend, but he didn't know if he really had the right to use that word. Whenever he and Stu had got stoned in the dorm, 
It had always been as part of a group. This visit was the first time Jacob and Stu had planned to do anything together, just the two of them. When the highway reached Galveston, it relaxed into a broad 19th century avenue. Slope-shouldered live oaks shaded the median. Stu's parents, who were both doctors, were still at work when Jacob arrived, and Stu immediately led Jacob upstairs, taking the steps two at a time through the bedroom, furnished with twin beds, that Stu had shared with his older brother when he was growing up. Jacob was to sleep in the brother's bed that night. And out onto a porch, almost the whole footprint of which was occupied by a collapsed, weather-beaten pink sofa, which stank of mold. A smell almost too sharp for Jacob to convince himself that he could come to like it, that he could learn to be at home with it. On the sofa beside Jacob, Stu rolled a joint. Many a proud voyage hath this pink galleon sailed, he said. He had found his parents' stash once, he told Jacob. It had been in a sandwich baggie inside a canister of cotton balls in the master bathroom. So they were cool with him taking a toke now and then, probably. It was a beautiful Texas spring afternoon, with terracotta light and a breeze that felt like someone lifting a sheet off you. Stu was shirtless, as he almost always was, because he was a kicker for the football team and as absurdly beautiful as he and Jacob were now becoming absurdly high. Do you feel it? Stu asked. He seemed to mean the diagonal of sun that was at that moment slicing across Jacob's right elbow. But how had he known that that was what was anchoring and filling Jacob's perception? You mean? For some reason, Jacob hesitated to put the touch on his elbow into words. Yeah, you're feeling it. Jacob laughed. There was something in the way the drug separated the parts of thinking that maybe Jacob, if he persisted in experimenting with it, would someday become the first person in all of history to understand. Let's catch some rays, Stu said. They went back downstairs. In the Rossiter's backyard, Stu handed Jacob a towel. Stu lay down, and Jacob understood that he was supposed to stretch out beside him. He took off his own shirt. Through his closed eyes, the sun blanketed him and isolated him from everything in the world. After a while, he turned his head to one side and opened one eye at a time. This was one of the parts he wanted to write about now on the plane. The view out of each eye had been slightly different, and it had started to seem as if he were a little person inside his own skull, running up and down stairs to look out the window on each floor. The pilot was announcing that they were beginning their descent to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. Jacob closed his notebook and held it out in front of him. His hands were shaking, but only a bit worse than usual. When he was little, a doctor had told him that if the tremor in his hands wasn't caused by a serious illness, it would go away when he drank. And he had recently discovered that when he drank, it did go away. But he kept forgetting to check what it did when he was stoned. After collecting his suitcase, he backtracked upstairs and found the gate where the plane from Boston would be arriving with his mother and sister. It was Good Friday, and the three of them were spending Easter weekend with his mother's parents. He liked the alchemy by means of which people who looked like plausible New Englanders when they boarded a plane became unmistakably Texan by the time they stepped off. All the people tumbling out of the plane from Boston looked now as if they could never have been Yankees including his mother and sister, who, like him, were practiced chameleons, 
as well as actual Texas natives. We have to rent a car, his mother said, after kissing him with her little duck-like half-bow. I saw the desks downstairs, Jacob replied. Hi, dork, his sister Alice said. She had cut her hair short. Jacob wondered how her first year of high school was going. For all I know, she might not even be able to walk, his mother continued. Jacob and Alice's grandmother had clipped another woman's car recently. Remember the time he brought her off the plane in a wheelchair and they hadn't said anything about it? At the time, her father had been dosing her mother heavily with a new drug that he was very taken with. Fortunately, the use of her mother's legs and most of her vision had come back a few months after she stopped taking the medication. And I think he might be having trouble talking. Don't be surprised. How could he not talk? Alice asked. She understands him, their mother said. I wish I knew what's a symptom of what he has and what's everything else. Parkinson's was her father's major illness, but he also claimed a number of minor ones. He was a doctor and liked to try the medications. He could still prescribe, even though he had stopped practicing some time ago, after he was warned that, because of his drinking, Fort Worth's hospitals were about to rescind his admitting privileges. A few years earlier, their mother had helped her parents move out of the stately, white-columned mansion where she had grown up, which had been the axis of what little mystery there was for Jacob in the city of Fort Worth. In front of and across the street from that house, there had been brambles through which you could skip down to the fenced-off back of the city zoo. In the yard behind the house, there had been an empty cottage where TJ, who had worked for their mother's parents since they first got married, had lived up until a few years after Jacob was born. But no zoo, no servants' quarters, no history at all environed the house where they now lived. A prim, one-story yellow brick ranch house, sheltered from the noise of the causeway by a long concrete wall at the end of the block. TJ still came to do yard work sometimes, but it was a long drive for him. He was getting older, too. Their mother turned onto the street. Granddad Jay and Eleanor were standing in their coats in the front yard. What on earth? their mother wondered aloud. As they pulled into the driveway, Granddad Jay shuffled toward them, unafraid of the still-moving vehicle. Eleanor, clasping a fold of his coat, kept pace. Granddad Jay was wearing a bowler that had crisp edges, even though it must have been at least 30 years old. The day was a little too warm for coats, let alone hats. Reenie, Eleanor said, leaning into the window that Jacob rolled down. Jay wants to take us out to dinner. He knows a place. What a nice idea, their mother said. Jakey, let Granddad Jay sit in front. Well, aren't you a sight for sore eyes, Eleanor said as Jacob got out of the car and then gave a little gasp of a laugh at herself for having been betrayed into open emotion. Jacob and Alice weren't allowed to address her as grandmother because, she had said, she just didn't like the sound of it. Her head wobbled with the effort of holding Jacob in focus. We kids will sit in back, she told her husband. Jacob held the door. Hold his arm, Jakey, their mother scolded him, but Granddad Jay batted Jacob's hand away as the old man, with rickety slowness, back-squatted into the passenger seat. After their grandmother got into the back seat, she seemed for a moment surprised to find Alice beside her. Aren't you lucky, 
Eleanor said, a little ambiguously, to get to sit next to me. I am, Alice said. Oh, you, Eleanor said, sweet as sugar, and laughed at herself again. Jacob got into the back seat on the other side of his grandmother. In the front seat, framed against the windshield like a movie projected onto a screen, Granddad Jay strained his pink hairless head, his lips puckered, toward their mother, who kissed him graciously. Then he said something that had the rhythm of a sentence but was slurred. He wants to know, Eleanor explained, what you said to make them give you this nice car. I just said I was Dr. Witcherly's youngest daughter. Granddad Jay spoke again. He says for that he could give you another kiss, Eleanor translated. I know what he said, their mother replied. As Granddad Jay gave directions, Jacob began to be able to understand the old man's malformed words, which were still loud enough, even though he no longer seemed to be able to get his mouth all the way around them. He was so tall that sometimes he had to lean over at an angle to see everything through the front windshield that he wanted to see. Why are you bringing us this way, Daddy? their mother asked. This is Mother's school, isn't it? He didn't reply. They were driving past a gothic brick building with mullioned windows set back from the road in a deep lawn. Let's hope they don't make me go back, Eleanor said, laughing at the ghost of an old fear. Did you not like it? Alice asked. I thought you had so many friends there, their mother said. You could say it was a nice enough place to go to school, Eleanor said, if you don't mind what you say. This is your old office, isn't it, Daddy? Did we come this way so Jakey and Alice could see? The car slowed alongside a mid-century modern building, rectangular blocks of concrete studded with yellow pebbles. The port cachere looked like a bank's drive-up window. In Massachusetts, the style of the building would have looked blunt and heavy, but in Texas you saw the simplicity of its lines and the honesty about its materials. Whenever you had to get a shot, Jakey, we saved it up until we came to Fort Worth, because Daddy's nurse Becky was the best shot-giver in the world. You couldn't even feel the needle going in. I remember, Jacob said. I'm pretty sure he doesn't like to come back here, Eleanor said quietly. Granddad Jay shifted in his seat. His arms hung straight down from his shoulders, limp, as if he had forgotten he could still use them. Jacob, I hear you want to major in English, but I think you should become a doctor, he said. Jacob was surprised to be able to understand him so clearly. The old man's eyes were glittering with effort and slyness. I know a drug for shaking if you want to be a surgeon. I told him about your hands, Jacob's mother explained. Oh, I see, Jacob said. But the reason he didn't want to be a doctor was that he didn't want to cut up dead bodies in medical school. I'll think about it. It's the greatest profession in the world. Do you want me to stop, Daddy? Their mother asked. We can get out and walk around. The old man shook his head. You can tell anyone you want that you know me, you know, he said. You can tell anyone you want you're named after me. Don't forget, Granddad Jay declared. It wasn't immediately clear whom he was talking to. The car coughed as it settled into a parking space in a roadside mall. On the way home, 
He needs a prescription filled, Eleanor explained to the others. Do you want to stop at Daniel Drug? Their mother asked. No, there's a place right near here, Reenie, her mother said. I had to call all over town to find it. It seems to be the only place in Fort Worth that has what he needs. Is that why we're eating all the way out here? Their mother asked. Don't be silly, Reenie, her mother said. The hostess counted out five floppy oversized menus. Eleanor said they wanted the smoking section. It was a Chinese restaurant, and when a waitress brought tea, Alice took charge of pouring it into the little thick-walled porcelain cups. When Granddad Jay reached a trembling hand toward the black plastic cartridge of sweeteners at the end of the table, Alice asked him, Why do you want one of those? Young lady, he said. Oh, I know why, she replied. She pulled the paper packets out of the dispenser and sorted them by brand. Granddad Jay had bought stock in an artificial sweetener company a number of years earlier, and for a time one of his games had been to consume as much of the product as he could. Drawers and drawers in the house were still full of the little blue rectangles. Five of yours, two of theirs, and three plain, Alice said when she had finished her inventory. He ripped open one of his and poured it into his tea. It was such a small cup that the amount of sweetener was disproportionate. But old people are sometimes a little ruthless about their pleasures, about taking from the world they have survived into tokens that remind them of what they loved about the one they grew up in. Eleanor unwrapped her chopsticks and used one to stir Granddad Jay's tea. When I was little, I didn't dare put sugar in my tea, she told Alice. Are you an orphan? Mother would ask us. What did she mean? You know, I'm not completely sure. Was this during the Depression? Jacob asked, not telling. Granddad Jay waved a hand over Jacob and Alice. Are you going to move back here now that they're finished? He asked their mother. Daddy, Alice still has three more years of high school. You're still young and pretty, Reenie, and you were always the clever one. Daddy, she warned him. Your mother needs you. Now, Jay, why would you go and say a thing like that? Eleanor scolded him. Give me a cigarette, Granddad Jay said. Now, when we haven't even ordered? But she took out of her purse a crinkling silver packet and the little blue finger of a lighter. I've quit, you know, Granddad Jay said to his daughter. It's been six days since I had one of my own cigarettes. That's not how it works, Daddy. It's working for me. I don't have to carry around cigarettes anymore. Eleanor helped him through a tussle with the lighter. It was odd to watch a man smoking 100s, dainty in their length and their slenderness. Because of the incongruity, it was almost as though Granda Jay were making fun of smoking. You're going to need to move back soon because she gets confused now, Granda Jay said. I do no such thing, Eleanor said. She wrapped the table lightly and shook her head. I declare... We all get confused sometimes, their mother said mildly. I'll just run in, their mother said after dinner, once she had parked outside the pharmacy. She rolled down the car's four windows a crack. Don't let them give you any lip, Granddad Jay said. Tell them to call my office. He didn't have an office anymore, of course. He looked away as she hurried across the asphalt. Reenie's so good to us, Eleanor said. 
Jacob was put in a guest room where the childhood bed of one of his aunts now lay next to a console that was serving as his grandfather's desk. The console was heaped with papers, though the other elements of the room were so feminine. A sewing machine, a hand-tented photograph of a great-grandmother as a child, a papier-mâché bust of a sort of flapper Anne Boleyn, whose plump green toque doubled as a pincushion, that it seemed unlikely his grandfather spent much time here. On top of the pile of papers were a few dozen photocopies of a single page. Jacob Palmcron Witcherly Jr., M.D., Curriculum Vitae. They were photocopies of photocopies. The white space was freckled, and the crossbars of the lowercase E's and A's had dissolved. When had Granddad J had them printed? The latest date of publication listed was the year of Jacob's birth. It would be a problem if Granddad J had lost so much on a new stock market enthusiasm that he needed to work again. A shout came from the other side of the house. Jacob didn't hear anyone respond to it. When the shout came again, he went to investigate. Granddad J was sitting alone at the head of the dining table. He had unbuttoned his dress shirt and had managed to get one arm out. His head was hanging down at a sharp angle from his neck, like a bundle sagging from the end of a hobo's stick. He shouted a third time, just as Jacob came into the room. Wenor? Can I get you something? Jacob asked. Eleanor, he said. Maybe it was because their responsibility as caretakers kept them more active that women tended to live longer than men. Eleanor was talking with Jacob's mother and sister in the other guest bedroom. Granddad Jay wants you, Jacob told her. Oh, dear, she said. Is he all right? Jacob's mother asked. Oh, he's all right, Eleanor replied. Returning to the room he had been given, Jacob sat down cross-legged on his aunt's childhood bed and took out his notebook. When Stu's parents had come home, one car pulling into the gravel driveway right after the other, Stu had brought Jacob into the kitchen to meet them. Jacob shook hands with them while the blood was rushing out of his head. A darkness descended like a curtain over his vision and then fluttered there. He glanced at Stu through the shadow and saw that Stu had put his shirt back on. Had he put on his? Without looking down, he felt his tummy. There seemed to be a shirt there. Mrs. Rossiter took cheese, crackers, and olives out of the refrigerator. Jacob's heart leaped with gratitude. She was so kind. It was her nose that Stu had, and her eyes. He needed to remember that she was doctor, not Mrs. What's your position, Jacob? Stu's father asked. The Rossiters had been having a political discussion almost since the moment Stu and Jacob walked into the kitchen. But although Jacob had been standing in the kitchen with them the whole time, he had no idea what it was about. His stoned brain hadn't considered it important to know. He looked at Stu. It's a pretty controversial topic, Dad, Stu said. Abortion. He can't answer for himself, Stu's father said. He goes to Harvard with you, right? I just think it's a matter of medical ethics, Stu's mother said. Was she covering for Jacob? Could she tell? A hospital shouldn't put any obstacles in the way of care that aren't medically necessary. But if the state has passed a law, Mary... My grandfather is a doctor, Jacob said forcing himself to speak, forcing the gears of his mind to turn. 
He thinks unwanted babies bring unhappiness into the world. He could immediately tell from the looks on the Rossiter's faces that his words hadn't come out right. Where does your grandfather practice? Stu's father asked. He's retired now. Stu's father was only going to ask easy questions now that Jacob had been revealed as simple-minded. Unhappy people didn't not deserve to live. That was the part of his grandfather's pronouncement that Jacob himself disagreed with, the part that made it awkward to have repeated it. Should he say that he disagreed with it? But if the moment had passed, he would be giving away that he couldn't tell that the moment had passed. He's a pediatrician, Jacob volunteered in a final burst of cognitive effort seeing in the detail of his grandfather's specialization, probably thanks to his altered state of mind, a hint of complicating relevance, an idea about the alleviation of suffering that wasn't quite mercy. Jacob's grandfather was shouting again. Jacob took his Walkman out of his backpack and put his headphones on. He climbed down into the trough of floor between his aunt's bed and the wall and lay down and gave himself up clicked into place inside the Walkman was a cassette of Magical Mystery Tour that Jacob had copied from a cassette of Stu's one afternoon on a stereo system that belonged to one of Stu's roommates. There was this one song, Your Mother Should Know. Jacob had listened to it so many times that he had taught himself exactly how long to hold down the rewind button at the end of the song in order to get back to the beginning. He held down the button exactly that long now. There was something a little shameful about repeating a song, about needing it so badly. But he wanted to hear the song more than he cared about shame. McCartney started singing. Jacob closed his eyes. McCartney was singing to him. He was singing from the summer when Jacob was born. That was part of what was so ingenious. The song seemed to have known it would grow old, that everyone and everything grows old. It was a simple song, only a couple of sentences, repeated. It was about how much had been lost and couldn't be recovered. It was about an idea of the future that someone had once had, an idea that had gone by a long time ago. Jacob was able to hear so much in the song, he believed, because the drug he had been sharing with his new friends at college had recently taught him, in sessions of disintegration that had sometimes been painful, that it was only accidentally and arbitrarily and to a certain extent mechanically, that he happened to be a particular individual in the world, to be the person he had always thought he was. He knew he should probably stop trying the drug, given how extreme the pain could sometimes be, but he hated the idea of failing to rise to the challenge that it represented. Jacob, his mother was shouting. She was in the doorway. She should know, actually. His mother should know. She wasn't even old, really. She was always being mistaken for his sister. Jacob took off his headphones. Your grandfather has been asking for you. He has. He's in bed. At the doorway, his mother stopped him and whispered to him. There's something, she began. I don't know if I should tell you. What? He whispered back. It was your name on the prescription. My name? His mother looked anxious. Maybe he got confused, Jacob suggested. Or he had already prescribed so much of it for himself that he thought they wouldn't give it to him otherwise. It was a new pharmacy, though. 
That's true, she said. He knew more about getting away with drugs than she did. Well, go talk to him, she squeezed his arm. Maybe the prescription had been for the drug that had the power to give Jacob the steady hands of a surgeon. He knocked on the door of the master bedroom, which was ajar. There was no answer. He pushed it open. His grandfather was in bed, already under the covers. From the angle of his grandfather's head, which was turned toward the ceiling, Jacob could tell the old man wasn't looking his way, hadn't seen him yet. Jacob sort of needed to pee, so he ducked into his grandparents' bathroom. The top of the toilet's water tank, the windowsill, the flat parts of the sink, the ledge beneath the mirror, the top of the medicine cabinet, and, Jacob knew without looking, all the shelves inside were peopled with dull orange plastic pill bottles with thick white helmets. It took a few seconds before he could start peeing, watched by all these soldiers. When he returned to the bedroom, he saw that his grandfather's eyes were closed. His grandfather wasn't wearing his glasses, so his face seemed unfocused. The skin on his face looked as thin as in most people it only is under the outer corners of their eyes. There were faint speckles on his scalp, and inside these scattered dots, what color there was in his skin had been erased. Granddad Jay? The old man opened his eyes. Did you want to talk to me? Jacob asked. His grandfather nodded. Jacob pulled a chair closer to the bed. On the nightstand, a glass of water had been sitting out for so long that fine white rings marked the stages of the water's receding. Jacob, his grandfather said. Yes? His grandfather didn't continue. His mouth was working as if he were biting the inside of his lips. What's on your mind? Jacob asked. The old man looked at Jacob with surprise, as if he had already forgotten Jacob was there. Do you want me to let you go to sleep? Jacob asked. Granddad Jay shook his head. After a while, he shifted in bed, trying to get comfortable. He strained his neck as if to pull out a crick in it, but no sound came except the rustle of the bedding. He inhaled sharply three times and again looked at Jacob as if he were startled to see him there. Jacob tried to come up with a topic of conversation. Mom says you like Kurt Vonnegut. His mother had told him this a couple of years before when she noticed him reading one of Vonnegut's books. Who? Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know what you're talking about, Granddad Jay said impatiently. He had probably read the books when they first came out, and maybe that was so long ago that he had forgotten them. He wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, Jacob said, The Sirens of Titan. I can't understand you, Granddad Jay said more loudly. He sounded agitated. It's okay, said Jacob, who knew from his own experiments what confusion was like. I can hear you, but you're not making any sense, his grandfather said, almost petulantly, as if something had broken that he hadn't realized could be broken. It's okay, Jacob repeated. He considered summoning his grandmother, but it seemed natural that his grandfather's confusion would spiral a little at the end of the day, and he didn't want to disturb her if it wasn't necessary. Not everything has to make sense. Sometimes, when Jacob, while high, 
got lost in the dark part of himself. He tore himself up in his compulsion to find his way back on his own and had to be helped to let go of the need to find his way back, to let go of the fear that he was alone and damaged and would never get back. He had to be helped to understand that the urgency he felt was the part that wasn't necessary. If Stu was there, all that needed to happen was for Stu to ask if he was all right, and then he wanted to be all right so badly that he was. He was pretty sure his grandfather only needed to fall asleep. For a while, Granddad Jay's eyes moved from side to side, as if following a conversation between people gathered around him. Finally, he shut them with effort and with a deep sigh. After dinner, Stu and Jacob had got into Stu's mother's car and gone looking for a party. They drove past the houses of half a dozen of Stu's friends from high school. At a house where there were two cars in the driveway and one on the street, Stu told Jacob to wait and went and knocked. A barefoot girl came to the door, and from the car, Jacob watched Stu shift back and forth on the balls of his feet as he talked to her, as if Stu were in a game and was staying ready for whatever the next play was going to be. After a few minutes, she followed Stu to the car, watching her bare feet as she walked, and let Stu introduce her to Jacob. There was no party at her house, she said. The car on the street was because one of her aunts was visiting from Lubbock. Maybe you and your aunt could come out with us, Stu offered. Who wouldn't like that, but she's already in her 90s, Stu, and I got work in the morning. Where are you going, anyway? I don't know, down to the seawall, get a po'boy. I'd say we'll get baked, but we kind of already started on that. You boys have fun, she said, before she headed back inside. I know what I can show you, Stu said. He turned the key in the ignition. You ever heard of the face? Stu wheeled the car around in a U-turn. He sat way back in his seat as he did it and turned the wheel with just one hand. Even in driving, he had an athlete's easy confidence. An old man's face, he said, had appeared on the exterior of one of the medical school's buildings. People thought it looked like the man who had owned the land under the building. Before he died, they said, he had told his kids not to sell it to the state of Texas. After the face appeared, stoners started congregating in the parking lot at night to stare at it, so the university sandblasted the wall clear. But a few days later, the face returned in a different panel of the wall, one floor down. So the university sandblasted again, and the face returned again, again in a different panel. Really? Jacob asked. I'm telling you, man, Stu said. I don't believe in ghosts, Jacob said. Yeah, me neither, I'm pretty sure. At the parking lot, there weren't any guards on duty. And anyway, because of Stu's mom, the car had the right sticker. Stu killed the engine. They didn't get out. Do you see it? Stu asked. They were facing the back of a modern building. No, Jacob said. The concrete was textured a little almost corrugated. Keep looking, Stu said. Where? Right where it's kind of patchy, over the door. Suddenly the pattern became legible. Oh, that? Jacob had thought the face would look as if it had been painted or drawn, but the image was almost photographic. You saw the shadows that would have been in the face rather than the face itself. 
Do you see it? I see it. It was nothing. It was a very Texan face, the way the chin was both soft and rectangular. The deep-set eyes, into which the kind of person who looked like that tended to retreat when he wanted to hide. Jacob slept late the next morning. At one point, there had been a tradition of Eleanor toasting store-bought waffles for her grandchildren when they visited. Jacob had always needed to make sure that at least a little butter melted into every single one of his waffles' panes. He poured himself a bowl of raisin bran and sat at the empty table. In the sitting area, reconstituted from the old house's living room furniture, his mother was drinking coffee and leafing through the star telegram, her hair still in a towel because she hadn't dried it yet. In a chair nearby, his sister was reading a book of Eleanor's about elves. Eleanor came in, left, came in again. She seemed to be tidying up. Rini, would you go take a look at your father and see what he's doing? She was holding a white shirt of her husband's that must have needed to be washed. I don't know why he won't get up. Sure, mother. Did you find everything you needed? Eleanor asked Jacob. The washer and dryer were in the garage, and she headed through the kitchen to get to them. Jacob, his mother's stage whispered from the corridor that led to the bedrooms. I'm eating. She motioned to him anyway. She had taken the towel off her head, and her hair was spiky and disordered. He got up. Is everything all right? Eleanor asked, returning at just this moment. I need to ask Jacob something, mother. We'll be right back. Outside her parents' bedroom, his mother held his arm. I don't think he's breathing. Do you want me to listen? He's cold, his mother added. In the bedroom, Jacob held his breath to keep himself still while he observed. But he knew in his heart that his grandfather's body already had the fragility of a thing that can no longer repair itself. Daddy, his mother said, a little louder than she and Jacob had been talking. Daddy? She gave his shoulder a light shove. She started to cry, stopped herself. What do we do? She asked Jacob. I bet he did it. That's why it was in your name. He did it so we would be here when it happened, so she wouldn't be on her own. They returned to the living dining room. Mother, I think Daddy's gone. Well, where did he go? Eleanor asked. I mean, I think he passed away. Now, Rini, I was sleeping right beside him all night. But he's not breathing anymore. I can't hear it anyway. I don't see how that can be. Do you want me to look again? Jacob volunteered. He walked back down the corridor and into the bedroom without pausing, so he wouldn't think about what he was doing. The world was like this. It had events like this in it. He wondered what it meant that it had been his name. He didn't really know how much his grandfather had known or guessed about him. The face wasn't different from the way it had been the night before. A little more sallow, maybe. Jacob held the back of his knuckles lightly against the side of the cheek. 
He wondered how he knew to feel with the back of his knuckles. The skin was cold, as his mother had said it would be. It was soft, too. He hadn't known it would be soft. He hesitated, but then lifted up a corner of the bed sheet. The hand next to Jacob on the bed and the bottom of the arm where it rested on the bed were a dark purplish blue, as if stained by lying in an otherwise invisible puddle. Jacob drew the sheet back up. He tugged a little to draw it up all the way over his grandfather's head. Granddad Jay had probably died just after Jacob finished talking with him. There had been something Granddad Jay had wanted to say. It was strange to pull a sheet over someone else, the way one did for oneself when one wanted to disappear. Maybe Granddad Jay, having decided, having timed it, having, despite some difficulties, pulled it off, had been looking forward to a last scene and had been trying to stage manage his goodbye a little, and Jacob, unaware of the urgency, unaware that there was a script and that he had a speaking role and that there was only going to be one take, had delayed too long in making his entrance, and by then the drug had already gone too far. Maybe in his last moments, out of a kind of politeness, Granddad Jay had been trying not to let Jacob know that Jacob had upset his plans. Maybe Granddad Jay had been telling himself silently as he was about to die, well, there are just a couple more minutes of this misunderstanding to get through. He's gone, Jacob said when he returned to the living dining room. His hands and arms are blue, he added in a lower voice to his mother. I didn't look at his feet. Do you want to go see him, mother, before we call? Who are you going to call, Eleanor asked. Sisty and Cal? She was laughing, probably because her best friend and her best friend's husband, the people she used to call once upon a time when there was an emergency, had died years earlier. The story was that she had gone to their house with her daughters when things were at their worst, when Granddad Jay, during one of his drunks, had threatened her with his gun. Before we call the funeral home, Mother. You think he's really gone, she said, still skeptical. Jacob, Alice, and their mother followed her down the corridor. At the bedroom door, Eleanor glanced back at the three of them and with a half laugh shook her head as one does over the little trials one has to go through. Jay, she said firmly as she entered. Jay? She leaned over the bed and turned down the sheet that Jacob had pulled up, folding it at the level of her husband's chest and then smoothing the fold with a wobbling hand. She studied his face with her wavering eyes. Jay, she said one last time. When he didn't reply, she looked down and away as if embarrassed. Oh, she then said in a different voice. While she was letting Alice embrace her, she patted her back absent-mindedly. Jacob and Stu had woken up so clear-headed in the quiet room they were sharing that Stu suggested they go shooting. Stu took his rifle out of his father's gun closet and put it in the trunk of his mother's car. Jacob had never shot a gun before. It was going to be another first for him, he thought, 
as Stu drove them out of town, like getting high with Stu and his other new friends at college had been. His second first with Stu, who, beside him, seemed, because of the risk that they were about to take, the risk of death if they did something stupid, which seemed small, and the probably greater but more abstract risk that is always part of doing something new, especially alive and real. There was something about doing a thing only because you wanted to. It was such a trip, people said, as if going somewhere were the prototype for experience as if driving into pale, empty country with a kicker from the Harvard football team to shoot a gun for the first time were that prototype. Part of adventure was that you might not come back, or not come back the same anyway. They were both wearing shorts, and Jacob kept shifting to unpeel his legs where they were bare from the cool, smooth, dark blue leather of the car seat. That was Caleb Crane reading his story, Easter. He's been writing nonfiction for the magazine since 2005. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Elif Batiman reads Truth and Fiction by Sylvia Townsend Warner. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>